This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. Hey there, IT Visionaries listeners. It's time to supercharge your network with Zeo, the North American leader in modern network infrastructure. Zeo connects critical data centers across the United States, Canada, and Europe with high capacity, metro fiber, and extensive long-haul dark fiber. Trusted by the world's most innovative companies, Zeo embodies what's next in networking. Discover Zeo's expansive network maps on their website and see where their network can take you. With low latency, reliable 400G and 800G enabled routes, it's the modern network solution you've been searching for. Visit Zayo's website today to unlock the power of your network and tap into the technologies of tomorrow. Go to zayo.com backslash network now. Welcome back, everybody. IT visionaries, we're excited to be back again with our new sponsor, Zayo Group. It is Awesome to be back in the seat to hear and learn about technologies that are transforming the world. Today, we have a guest. He's the chief customer officer of a company called LibreStream. Now, let me read a little bit off of the LinkedIn page so you can kind of get a flavor, and then we'll have Charlie dive in and explain what this is. LibreStream is designed to increase operational efficiency with industrial AR, AI, and IoT. It solves a massive problem. You can kind of get a hint at what this problem is. I can tell you that if you go check out their Twitter handle, which is linked in the show notes below, you're going to see a lot of photos of people in, I would call field work, but not just field work, but like dangerous field work. Uh, The people are in hard hats. They're definitely in remote areas, potentially. It looks like this is super important technology. Charlie, welcome to the show. We're excited to learn all about it. Let's start there. Tell us, for anyone who's you know trying to put the pieces together listening to this, what is LibreStream and what does it do? Great. Thanks, Albert. Well, LibreStream is a knowledge delivery platform. And uh, our, our platform is actually called OnSite. And it's really focused on getting the needed knowledge, data, information, know-how to a person who needs it at the moment they need it, wherever they are in the world, and whatever device they're using. And, you know, as you said, we're, we're focused in uh, what we like to call the, the industrial worker. You, you, I liked your dangerous yeah. word. That makes us sound extra cool. Um, <laughs> but basically, people that operate outside the, the carpeted spaces of the world, you know, they're standing on concrete, they're standing on dirt, they're standing in or over water. And uh, again, very focused on industrial companies. We have a really strong presence in energy and oil and gas, aerospace, um, heavy equipment, manufacturing, test and certification. We can talk about some of the common threads amongst our customers uh, a little later on. But if you think about this idea of knowledge, knowledge delivery, that, that could be um, someone's expertise. That could be data that exists in a uh, system of record at a company. It could be specifications, historical information, the perspective of somebody that's got more or different experience. The, the challenge uh, that we see in the world is that at every moment of every day, somewhere, there is a process that is slowed down or stopped because someone is waiting for information or knowledge or something that they don't have, uh, that if they only had that and they had it faster, that operation gets back up and running at full tilt or up and running from, from a full stop, which boils back down to dollars. I mean, the, the industries I listed, they all, they're all you know 
expensive industries when it comes to downtime. So our, our focus is really on, on that knowledge delivery to surmount that slow down or stopped process challenge that comes up. I agree 100% with you. I had uh, my old roommate actually worked in um, in a manufacturing plant. He worked for Ford Motor Company and he got to t- I got to hear some of the stories of how important it was and what things that were going on. You know, when we hear what you just said, because a lot of times when we've in like the past, if maybe if you've not been exposed to this industry or industrial work, you might think of this data where the where the service worker is at the time of need. You might think of it like looking up you know, a skew. Like we're not talking about looking up a skew. We're not talking about finding uh, a pair of shoes in size eight when you're not sure if they're on the shelf. We're talking about, the reason why I say danger is because I know the great lengths that people that work in these industrial fields go to, to have safety. As you already stated, they're typically in places that if they're not doing the right thing, potentially uh, things can go wrong. They are in charge of massive processes that are, like you just said, like worth (laughs) unimaginable amount of values for these machines to keep running. Give us an idea of when you say you're going to bring this information to the worker, what does that mean? Because I can see someone who's maybe not as familiar with what you're talking about, just saying, well, why can't they just get on a zoom or a team's call and just figure it out? Like, why, what do you, why do I need a platform to do this? Right. Right. So, you know, uh, just a word on the safety side of things, you, you know, you're absolutely right. One of the interesting dimensions to that, if you take something like an offshore oil and gas, uh, platform where we we do a lot of work um, to even get out to the platform you have to be trained in uh, all the safety protocols of the platform you also you also have to do um, basically because you go by helicopter you have to do this helicopter ditch training so if you've ever seen videos of people doing this simulator where they put you in uh, a, you know a, basically a fuselage of a helicopter strap you in and then they invert it and dump it into a pool like a swimming pool wow. big swim, and you have to get out and then first they do that with, uh, I think they might give you oxygen the first time, and then you have to do it without oxygen. And then you, so basically the, the reason I'm saying all this is that because of all those really tough requirements, it's hard to get somebody out there, right? So the idea of okay. the, of getting knowledge or, or, or something without having to physically bring a person makes a huge difference because it, it's, a, it's an astronomical cost to do that as well as availability. Like those... Helicopter seats are booked up months in advance. The time on the rig, the, the living space on the rig is all booked up. But it's called like the most expensive hotel in the world is an offshore oil rig. <laughs> to your question about why not use, you know, Zoom or things like that, you know, it's not just about a video collaboration. Right? It's not just about a what I like to call a carpeted spaced application, right? You know, your Zooms, your 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 Microsoft Teams, those sort of things. It's really more about that That information may come from a person. For example, you might be somebody who's saying, hey, Charlie, I can walk you through how to fix that thing. But a lot of times it's also data that needs to be acquired from a variety of systems. And oftentimes, if you, if you talk to somebody in the field, they in their daily work have to interface with multiple systems. And uh, it might be a, a field service software that tells them what their job is. Know, where this is the work order, this is where you're going, that sort of, sort of thing. They may have to go to a maintenance system to get the historical records on something. Some other system to um, do some reporting or look up some, some specifications. It's a, it's a term we've actually coined called app hopping. So what's happened to a lot of these folks, and again, we're huge advocates of the, of the field worker, is that their companies, through the best of intentions, 
have deployed all sorts of different systems. Hey, ERP here, CRM mm. over here, uh, FSM over here, all all with great you know intention and 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 valid reasons. But then suddenly you can envision all these seven or eight systems fun, funneling down and landing on one person who now has to to interface with all these things. Our platform is really focused on shrinking that the the idea of making it almost a single pane of glass that allows you to contextually pull what I need for the thing I'm doing at the moment I'm doing from a different system here, a different system there, just to to eliminate a lot of that app hopping challenge. And then of course, if it's a, hey, I've got to, uh, I've got to call Albert because he's the one who can walk me through this, that capability is there. But sometimes we think we think of that as the defibrillator on the wall, right? You don't always need it. When you do need it, you really need it. Um, but you don't want to be using a defibrillator every day. So most of our users are, are really in a scenario where they're they're accessing data, and we're, our goal is to really streamline that, make them easier to find it and, and utilize it. As you were telling that story, I was thinking about just actually this past weekend, I went to visit University of Wyoming. Uh, my my father went there a long time ago. Anyways, on the drive from Wyoming to from Laramie to Cheyenne, there was a huge field, huge. There was uh, there was there was oil derricks. There were lots of wind uh, wind turbines, and I was thinking to myself as you were talking, you know, how many people service workers have to go to those places? They have to fix or maintain or update whatever it is to be updated. And I was also thinking about how there was like no signal, <laughs> and, and, and this was relatively close. I feel like. Don't get me wrong. Cheyenne and Laramie, they're not huge cities, but it was relatively close. About, uh, you know, if, if I was in the middle, it'd be like 22 miles, 23 miles to either or. And I was thinking to myself, you're talking about bringing seven applications to the to the worker, what used to be, or more, right? You're talking about using some le- levels of artificial intelligence, possibly augmented reality. How have you guys engineered this solution? Because it feels like an extremely data intensive uh, application, uh, but- we already know a lot of these workers that work in these fields don't work at locations with, let's say, great Wi-Fi. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like there's not there's not great Wi-Fi there. Yeah. And, and no surprise. I think Wyoming probably has the lowest population density besides Alaska. So uh, even if you're yeah. halfway between Cheyenne and Laramie, I could I could imagine it's it's a little bit challenged. One of the things and, and it, this is uh, maybe to touch back on the platform a little bit, uh, sort of the other side of the coin. You mentioned wind turbines and we do some work in that industry. And I know a guy who works for um, uh, a company, he used to work for Vastus, and I works for a service company. And he's an individual who can go up to a wind turbine. These, you know, these are, I think the blades now are close to 200 feet. And they're, they're preposterously huge. When you, when you yeah. actually get up next to one, it's yeah. unbelievable. You can't, you can't imagine how big this thing is. It's like, it's unfathomable how they even transport the parts. Yeah. They're that big. I've seen them going down the road. It's pretty, it's a, it's a significant wide load. But this guy can go up to the turbine the base of the tower and put his stand with his back to it, put his head against the tower and feel the vibration in the gearbox up in the nacelle and say, Hey, that gearbox is a little rough. You know, now this is a guy who's been in the wind industry for 30 years. Right. Uh, and he's, he's colloquially known as the turbine whisperer. Right. Now there's only one of these guys and, and therein lies the other challenge that exists in all of our companies. Everybody's got their version of the turbine whisperer, the guy who knows mm-hmm. everything. And the challenge, and it's become significant, and it's going to get even more so in the next six, seven years, is that 
any industry, anywhere in the world, the most knowledgeable and experienced people in those companies are leaving. Just, you know, we, we could we call it in the States, we call it the baby boomer generation, right? But there's a demographic shift, you know, there's sort of the baby boomer equivalent globally of these people moving out of the workforce and taking with them the accumulated knowledge of 30, 40 years of experience. So the other th- focus um, not on, or that we do with our platform is not just knowledge delivery. It's also knowledge capture because mm. um, it's what I call the Paul McCartney problem. Okay. So Paul McCartney's 80 years old. If you want to see Paul McCartney live in concert, you got about seven more years. Seems pretty healthy. Maybe you'll go to 90 plus. But anyway, at some point, he's not going to be performing live. So the same problem exists when you have these insanely knowledgeable people in your company who are going to retire in less than seven years. When they leave, that's all gone. In fact, uh, just to stay with the wind turbine example, we had a customer in the, in the utility industry. They had um, a, a wind farm performing great, no issues. All of a sudden, boom, all the turbines start having problems. And they couldn't figure out why. And it took them a couple of months, but they, they eventually determined that there was a maintenance tech that served those turbines in that wind farm who retired. And he, kind of unbeknownst to anybody else, was doing a little extra stuff. Nothing like wrong, in fact, quite good. He was, I don't know if it, I'm, I'm simplifying, he wasn't running around an oil can, but basically he was doing some sustain maintenance things, some extra actions that were very beneficial. When he left, nobody did that. Nobody knew about that. So his knowledge and his actions were gone and lost. And, and then, you know, back to this idea of downtime, uh, you know, the, the, the performance of the wind farm suffered until they figured it out. So one of the things that we're, we're doing is focusing on this, this capture challenge to take the knowledge that exists within people, embed it into a system that doesn't retire so it's accessible to people, you know, going into the future. Because the other interesting thing is our parents' generation wasn't uncommon to have a, you know, single employer throughout most of your career. Yeah. So you've yeah. got 20, 30-year people uh, in companies. You're not going to hire a 24-year-old and expect them to be here in five years. It's just So now this, this knowledge loss becomes perpetual, right? You've got a turnover of people. So the challenge is how do you get them up to speed quickly and how do you... Um, preserve knowledge in your company in a way that and when those people leave in three to five years, you don't suffer a loss there as well. Yeah. And the way you were describing it. So actually one of my first gigs out of school, I wanted to be a MotoGP tech, which was a motorcycle mechanics. Um, it's MotoGP is like the formula one of motorcycle racing. So the highest level of racing there is in, in motorcycle racing. And I remember working at my mechanic school with what you just described as someone who could literally hear the bike and know the problem. I was like, what are you talking about? And he says, I can hear it. The chain's loose. Or I can hear it. There's a cam that's off. Or I can hear it. There's a valve loose. Like, it sounds the same. It sounds the same to me. Yeah. And these trade skills, you know, that's the that's the thing about a lot of industrial work is for a lot of white collar workers, or however you want to name them, knowledge workers, sure, you're working, you're, you know, you have a lot of knowledge and it's strongly applicable, but there's something about the field where you're actually dealing with physical objects where it's not really easy to Google what's wrong. <laughs> it's, just, it's just super hard. You like either know it or you don't. And if you don't, it typically requires an investigation of some sort, some type of assessment, some type of teardown, some type of 
long process. Uh, so if you're talking about those oil and gas derricks, assembly lines, manufacturing facilities, if you if they they you know we already know they can't afford to do that. They can't afford to stop ops and be like, oh, let's figure it out. They want you know they they, they want the knowledge to be known super quick. Give us an idea of the what you and your company's vision for the future of how this is going to be solved because. Inside of your the company, the the taglines for you guys, you're talking about also adding elements of industrial AR, AI, and IoT. That makes me feel like I'm going to bring. You know, I'm just going to put words in your mouth, but you, you'll clarify. That makes me feel like I'm going to bring devices to the problem, and it's going to somehow, I don't know, create a virtualized version so that I can quickly see what's wrong and help me solve it quicker. Maybe even guide me and pinpoint me to the problem faster. That'd be kind of cool. That's what I'm thinking. So, boy, there's a whole bunch of a bunch of things in that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna range around. Slow me down if I'm if I'm going off the rails. No, um, I think it's go. probably good good to uh, define the term. I'll start with augmented reality because you know everybody's got a different idea of what that is. And usually, if you say to somebody at a you know cocktail party, augmented reality, they're immediately going to go to this idea of a visual representation cartoon, if you will, that is superimposed over what I'm looking at, you know, here's how the screwdriver unscrews the panel and the panel comes on, all that sort of thing. And I think it's important to remember that we as humans are not just visual creatures. So we have, we have many, many senses and our reality is not just what we see. So when, when Lieberstrom talks about augmented reality, we talk about augmenting the reality of our user, meaning, yes, we provide them with visual capabilities and things perhaps overlaying or being spatially uh, fixed uh, and persistent in, in the real world. But we also talk about augmenting their knowledge. Right? If you know something, if you can get information that you didn't have otherwise, you've been augmented in that way. Uh, we talk about, in, in some cases, augmenting their, their other senses, right? The ability to pull in IoT data. So I might be looking at a, a compressor in a facility and it's just humming away um, no instrumentation on it, no gauge, no nothing. Well, that might be instrumented in an IoT scenario. So we can see input pressure, output pressure, rotational speed, temperature, all the, anything that's instrumented. We can put that up on that user's device. So now as they're looking at this piece of equipment and adjusting it, they can see real time what those effects are, even though there's no instrumentation physically in, in the world in front of them. So Mm, our, our definition that's really cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, our definition of AR is really broader than than the cartoon floating in space. So I always like to to um, to lay that out there. When it comes to uh, you mentioned, you know, the the, the field worker, the the tech workers, um, there's a lot of things that we can do to to help their job easier. I don't believe we'll ever replace a human when it comes to doing that kind of work. Humans do mm-hmm. things extremely. We, we've got you know, whatever, millions of years of evolution to create, you know, very dexterous fingers and uh, problem solving skills and all sorts of things like that. What we want to do is reduce the cognitive load. And what I mean by that is offload the things that people maybe don't do as well. Maybe historically, we're not great observers. We don't have particularly good memories. Um, We don't necessarily correlate vast amounts of data very effectively as individuals. So if we offload that to a system, then the human can focus on doing the things that humans do very well, solving problems, physically dexterous stuff. I mean, it's a little bit like, think about the last time you went anywhere that you had never been before by car. 
uh, maybe when you were in Wyoming. You punch in the, the address in your, in your phone and it says, here you go. This is the direction. You didn't get out an atlas or a map and write down on a you know, sheet of paper, turn left and route 142. You just offloaded that cognitive load of the directions to a system and you focused on what you do best, you know, drive down the road, stay 10 miles above the speed limit, don't hit the tumbleweed or dog or whatever. Um, so that's the, that's the scenario, right? We do it all the time in our personal lives. It's, it's how do we do that for these industrial workers? I'm starting to get a really cool picture of what you guys are doing with different companies and different fields, different sectors, um, industrial sectors. Give me an idea of when this starts getting implemented because every company is going to have different processes or knowledge, uh, their knowledge base that they need to deliver as well as capture, transfer. It's going to be somewhat unique. There's going to be certain certain things I'm sure going to overlap. Uh, certain like pieces of equipment, for example, are probably uh, you know used in many many fields, or at least this in many times in the similar fields. So how does how does it begin? Like you have the platform that can grab the information, deliver it. You could also have to capture it and bring it back. How? Does an implementation begin though? Because every company is going to have different policies, processes, safety procedures. It's going to have all kinds of stuff that they're going to want to, I would assume, deliver and <laughs> capture. Um, is it, it? It feels like you know you. It, would t- it takes a long time. Give us an idea. What does it look like if I'm if I if I need your services? What's it look like to implement this? So there's a, a couple of things. One, we're we're not replacing systems that exist or or, or systems of record right. or sources of knowledge. Um, because as you said, they, they are going to be unique to each, each company. And the, the working premise is that the answer is within one's own company, right? So somebody or something or somewhere, there's, there's uh, that, that answer, that knowledge, that bit of data that, that the user might need. What we typically see and our customers find is they, they've, they've historically started with some of the collaboration capabilities, right? So the, the remote expert uh, capabilities, video collaboration stuff. Um, some digital work constructions or work processes to guide people through that. So uh, you start with that. From there, to some extent, we, we look to our customers to where their pinch point is. Because again, uh, this idea of knowledge loss and people loss and things like that is, is universal. So one of the, the, the most important questions we ask of any customer is, do you have this problem? And I can tell you, Albert, that everybody says, Absolutely, we have it, right? Yeah, we have um, this problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so the next question is, how is it manifesting itself? Right? Oh, well, we, you know, we we've got we can't get enough people to do X job, or we can't get enough inspectors to cover all the survey work we have to do in a given day. Um, okay, what are you guys doing about it? Well, we we've tried to to route people and do some intelligent routing, and that didn't work. And so, basically, what we try and focus on is where's the place that we can be most impactful. Because don't get me wrong, like I'm, I'm a huge technology guy, but Librastream has a bit of a reputation of saying cool technology is awesome. Like amazing demos, futuristic stuff, sounds great, awesome. What we always want to be doing is having an impact right now. So where do you start right now to, to make a meaningful impact and then broaden from there? So, you know, the idea of go narrow and deep in a particular area and then widen from there, but be impactful in a way that may even not be the sexy technology part, but how, how can you do it in a way that, that impacts the company right away? 
Hey there, IT Visionaries listeners. It's time to supercharge your network with Zeo, the North American leader in modern network infrastructure. Zeo connects critical data centers across the United States, Canada, and Europe with high-capacity metro fiber and extensive long-haul dark fiber. Trusted by the world's most innovative companies, Zeo embodies what's next in networking. Discover Zeo's expansive network maps on their website and see where their network can take you. With low latency, reliable 400G and 800G-enabled routes, it's the modern network solution you've been searching for. Visit Zayo's website today to unlock the power of your network and tap into the technologies of tomorrow. Go to zayo.com slash network right now. Give us an idea of what I guess it takes to do to do this because there has to, I'm assuming there has to be some certain requirements on the customer side. Um, it sounds, because it sounds like, you know, when, when I hear you talk about this and again, What's almost impossible to figure out is what each listener is hearing, right? Because they're all painting a picture in their mind, kind of what you just said before. But you're talking about service work, industrial work, remote places, uh, places where network's going to be possibly not even there. They might only have be limited to handheld, right? You're talking about comms tools. You're talking about bringing knowledge to the person. You're talking about capturing knowledge and bringing it back. Give us an idea. Do you tell the customers they need specific technical requirements to make this happen? Or have you have your engineers figured out a way to stick this into all different types of environments? Because I know, for example, I mean, I'm, I uh, I worked for a company that worked out of Canada. I saw you guys are HQ in Canada. It was in Alberta. I was on site once for it. And they did the um, oil sands mining. Yep. Fort Mac. Exactly. In uh, Fort McMurray, I believe it was in Alberta. Yep. And I asked them like, well, what kind of you know, how will this training, it was online training, get there? And like, oh, we're going to download and bring it to them in, on disk. And I was like, this is, and I was like, what, what? It's like, yeah, there's, there's no cloud there, bro. <laughs> I mean, of course, this is like 2007, but I do know that a lot of these places are going to have limitations. They're not like yeah. your normal office location in the middle of a city. When you sit down and work, because I'm sure you hear all different types of setups, how have, how have you guys approached this problem? Because it's a problem in the field you're in. Yeah, absolutely. And and it you know, probably is a touchstone into our, our origin story. So LibreStream is going to be 20 years old in uh, September of this year. So when the company started, the founders really were, actually the founders were hardware guys. Um, originally they had a background in industrial barcode scanning and, and technologies associated with that. And uh, long story short, they, through the, their company was acquired, they ended up having to go to Taiwan quite a bit to as engineers to help with uh, productization down on the production floor and things like that. And they were going from Winnipeg to Taiwan quite a bit. And they did often get there and be like 20 minutes on the floor and they'd solve the problem. And then like, okay, get on a plane back to Winnipeg. So they said, there's gotta be a better way to do this. Um, and <laughs> I'm just imagining flying from Winnipeg to Taiwan for a 20 minute uh, solution yeah. session. That seems yeah. a bit much, but okay. <laughs> they, they were, so they, they, they really came up with the idea and in fact invented the whole concept of, of remote expert. And now don't forget this is 2006 or 2003 when they first started. Um, but you know, 2005, 2006, when the commercial deployment happened, they had built their own camera which looked like a really beefy SLR. It was all ruggedized. And the only other device that it would stream to was a PC, pre-smartphone, pre-broadband. So, you know, it's your, it's your oil sands example writ large. And we had two companies that were the first customers. One was Boeing. The other one was Baker Hughes. Baker Hughes is a 
um, oil services company like a, like a Schlumberger or a Halliburton. And, you know, each one of those kind of brought some specific requirements. Boeing came and said, hey, we love this. It's going to be great for our manufacturers. It's going to be great for our ongoing care. But we need a laundry list of, of security requirements. And oh, yeah. uh, so they so what got baked in from the beginning was all these requirements. And we we have we have a tremendous amount, about 85 percent of the largest aerospace uh, and defense customers in the world um, use our platform. And, you know, we do stuff with the DOD, et cetera, et cetera. And we've got a litany of, of security. A lot of that stuff, from like the original Boeing stuff, is, is tougher than anything we've seen since. But that's been a hallmark of the platform. The other part from, from the other uh, first customer there, Baker Hughes, they were in the North Sea, offshore rigs, 56K dial-up from the rig. <laughs> they were like, you can't use all of it. Like, you can get... 20 kilobytes. Yeah, so. you can't, all my 56 kilobytes, you can't use all of it. Like, wait, you want me to do what? Yeah. <laughs> so they basically said, but we need to be able, you know, we said, oh, well, we can, we figured out a way. We, we built a, a, a streaming protocol to be able to do that. I shouldn't say we, I wasn't with the company at the time, but that allowed you to transmit video, degraded quality, but still video uh, in that, in that constrained environment. And they said, oh, this is great. We love it. But we are trying to inspect the condition of a weld that's exposed to the salt air in the North Sea to, to determine does this railing need to be replaced or not, whatever. So we need to, mm. we need to be able to see that detail. So they said, hey, <laughs> can we capture, you know, how do we see that level of detail? So the other guys thought about it and they said, well, what if we just gave you a still image? Like, well, that would work. So, you know, they, they come up with this idea of saying, well, we'll, we'll capture, a, 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 you know, in the degraded environment, we'll still capture a, a um, high-res image and transmit that, you know, to, to think about your oil sands example. And, and this is, you know, less and less a factor these days because we've got a lot more broadband. We got, you know, Starlink and other things in the world that you pretty high bandwidth everywhere are getting there. If you can do 1080p, you can do 1080p all day, all day long. Fantastic. But if you don't, we adapt that bitstream down so it's a lower bit rate to, to live within that. When it gets really bad, we cut the video and keep the audio because... Mm. Might, sound, might sound strange, but audio is more valuable than video because you can hmm. convey more information in audio, right? I mean, we're doing a podcast and there's a video element to this, but most people listen to the podcast while they're driving. They're getting it all through audio. Like we listen to the radio, but we don't watch TV with the sound turned down. So audio is actually uh, a more data-rich payload than, than video. So we can... We, but the point is, to your original question, how do you deal with that? We basically created these different means of conveying data and information in, in really constrained environments. Once we built that road uh, to, to live in those kind of environments, which we would traditionally call network rugged, physically rugged, like you said earlier, dangerous, but also yeah. network, network rugged. Now you've got that road. What else can you drive on it? Well, we can drive digital work instructions. We can do more asymmetric stuff like um, optical character recognition and computer vision, uh, natural language translation, things like that. So, but it, but it's definitely been our our hallmark of we start with that worker that's in, you know, the challenging environment from both a physical and network perspective. I'm gonna have to use that soundbite for Mission Commercial. Uh, that the audio <laughs> audio data is actually more enriched, and we learn better from audio than audio and video. I mean, I was like, yeah. I hear it. <laughs> the, when it, you know, you, you mentioned just briefly, it was super brief, but cause I was starting to think 
whenever I talk with our guests, I always think about, well, what's the future going to unlock? What are certain things that are going to happen? What are, what's stopping from the future from being the present? Um, and I know you're in, you know, there's certain things for your, your customer base that's out of your control. There's security requirements, as you already mentioned, some of these things are, highly secured, uh, understanding the oil, gas. I mean, for anyone listening, just let's just use oil and gas. Just under knowing the delivery schedule, the delivery schedules have to be secured. Okay. They have to be secured because if they get compromised, it's a, it's a potential threat to a lot of different things. So security is a big requirement. Infrastructure, just the straight physical locations of these places. Uh, you mentioned before that technology is expanding to make it so it's more accessible to these remote places, and that's going to continue. But I'm thinking to myself, like, when is that what you just mentioned going to unlock? Uh, you mentioned like natural language processing, possibly across languages. Like, could it? Could we get to a point where let's use that example of like this knowledge expert in the world of wind turbines is the absolute genius of wind turbines? All the person needs to do is see it and hear it. They can figure out what's wrong with it. Could that ever become a source of help for anybody anywhere in the world speaking any language? That'd be crazy, but. Technology has to catch up. It sounds like to let that happen. Um, what do you see? What do you see unlocking? I guess if you know security protocol gets every, uh, you know, everyone's on the same security protocols. Network keeps expanding. What do you see the future looking like for this industry? Yeah, I mean, on the on the natural language processing side, I mean, we do that today. So uh, if you only spoke oh, German awesome. and I only and I only spoke uh, Swedish, um, we could we could actually do a, a conversation, and we could either have that transcribed via text or actually spoken out. So, you know, we're taking advantage of a lot of the AI work that's being done by, by a lot of the big AI players um, to utilize that. I'm gonna sound like a broken record in this, but I'm a huge end user advocate. Uh, even, even within LibreStream, I'm probably the biggest uh, banger of that drum. And so often we take for granted the technology that we have in our offices or in our, our back to our carpet yeah. phase example. And bringing that to the people in the field uh, is really what we're, we're focused on doing. So a lot of the things that we, you know, this is going to sound crazy, but, but a lot of the, the folks in the field, I've just gotten smartphones like in the last few years. So the idea of, of making that technology available to them, again, to reduce their cognitive load, to reduce the friction in their job. Yeah, the uh, the cognitive load piece is something to think about when it comes to like because you mentioned there's going to be a wave of people retiring in the next handful of years, and there's for whatever reasons there's just not as many people interested in that kind of work nowadays. Uh, we know that recruiting in many of the uh, labor fields is really challenging. I mean, you think it's tough in the tech sector? I heard labor sector like I, we've had uh, fleet managers, CDLs, the ports, the people that operate the cranes. Talk about how like no, there's not enough people want to do this. I read an article recently about pilots, like how there's like a massive pilot shortage now. Uh, people, don't, not enough people know how to fly, um, and this gap is going to need to get closed. Of like, <laughs> meaning of no experience and willing to experience, and I guess safe, safe, safety is key, right? It, it capable, yeah. And that, and we're talking about closing that gap. How do you see the future of learning these trades? Do you see a place where, you know, technology gets to the point where everything's going to be done virtually? Like you're going to be sitting at home. Like I can learn how to fly, like here in my house. Like I'd love to hear your perspective on the future, regardless of Libra stream. Like how are these, like, I call them physical skills because you can't, you know, flying is there's machines, there's levers, there's, 
you know, there's, and of course you can't make mistake. Uh, <laughs> you gotta be, you gotta be perfect. Um, do you see a place where we're going to start learning this stuff at home and you can just, I don't know, train to be a pilot from my desk. I, I doesn't feel like I could, but I don't know. Yeah, probably not though. I have to say, I, I know some guys who, so, um, we do some work with, uh, with Gulfstream and, uh, if you, uh, uh it will, when you buy your, your, uh, you know, next Gulfstream, Albert, um, <laughs> you can, you can, uh, when you go to get certified to fly that aircraft, uh, you can do your full certification on their simulators in Savannah. And the first time you ever do, when you take possession of your plane, assuming you're flying it, that will be the first time you will ever actually physically have flown it. But now again, this isn't, uh, you know, Microsoft flight simulator running on your PC at home, right? These, these are pretty significant flight simulators. If you've ever seen one in the, in the flesh, it's uh, you would never know you weren't in an aircraft. So, but, yeah. but to your question on, on, are we going to uh, virtually train? I don't think it's going to be that extreme. I think what it's, what, what we will see is additional capabilities and, and platforms that allow somebody to perform at a level beyond their experience and, and expertise. Meaning we're not going to take somebody who has never done this and, and say, okay, time to do heart surgery. You know, it's going to be, how do you take a level one tech and enable them to do a level two tech or a level three techs job? Or how do you shorten that time? Whereas historically it might've taken five years to get from level one to level three. Uh, again, maintaining safety protocols and, and all the other stuff. How do you accelerate that learning process? And, and, and we're going to need to. Yeah. Someone once mentioned to me that he took it from the mountain Malcolm Gladwell outliers concept of 10,000 hours. And he was just saying that, you know, that's if there was a way to create more, he called them at bats, but like if there was a way to create more at bats, right? So for example, if you've been fixing wind turbines for 30 years, the amount of turbines you fixed is astronomically significantly more than someone who of course, maybe is first in the field or training for the first time because they have to encounter the problem in order to be able to recognize the problem, fix the problem. And so the idea, like, is there a future where technologies like yours are going to give me the trainee more at bats than I would otherwise encounter in the field? I think that's highly plausible. And so I think that's pretty exciting to think about what's potentially coming down the road with companies like yours doing what, because these, uh, this, one of the major goals of why we went on break at IT Visionaries and took a pause is like we wanted to talk to more people that were in technology that was going to shape. Uh, I, I don't want to belittle other software companies, but like more of the physical critical things that we need. Because mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of technologists kind of forget that. Like most of the things we actually need are physical things. Like they're not chat apps. Like we don't we don't need another chat app, <laughs> you know. But if you're using chat to help me fix a wind turbine so I have electricity in my house. I think that's good. That, <laughs> that's pretty damn good. You know, so for for yourself, when people, I guess, sit down with you and they, they're learning what LibreSim can do and they're asking you questions of like how this can impact learning, what are some stories you tell to, to demonstrate? Like, hey, this is, it takes people, you know, they were doing A to B and it took this long before and now this is what we look like today. Right, right. Talk about your, your at-bat example um, or, or your, your comment about, they're just not being enough people to do the job. So there's a couple ways to do. This. Yeah. And and by the way, there's not going to be unless somebody you know invents a clone army or some really good robots or something like that. But I don't think that's going to happen. Um, 
The other way to, to approach this, though, is how do you take the people you have and make them more effective? So I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. One of our big industries that we work in is, is something called the test inspection and certification industry. TIC is what it's known. Mm. And, and these are companies um, that you've probably heard of, some of them like uh, Lloyd's Register, Bureau Veritas, SGS, and most of them are actually based in Europe, but they are in the certification business and testing and, and certifying. It's kind of like uh, uh, the UL certification, the CE certification. If you ever look at like the bottom of a lamp, that sticker that's on there. But anyway, these guys in all sorts of industries, and in fact, in a lot of the other industries we work in, we see we see them also playing a role. But they're doing verifications and inspections all over the world on anything from manufacturing to border crossing to um, the integrity of a hull, the ship. And uh, today, these companies are doing using our platform about 4,200 inspections per week uh, using our platform. And so, you know, the, 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 the quick kind of obvious thing is, wow, that's awesome. If you're doing an inspection virtually, instead of going to do the inspection, well, you're saving all that uh, travel cost, et cetera, et cetera. But that's actually dwarfed by the bigger result, which is the effectiveness effectiveness of an individual inspector. Now, previously, somebody mm. might be able to do three, maybe four inspections a day. But now if they're doing them virtually, they're doing 10 a day. So now you've just taken your existing capacity, if you will, of your most scarce resource, which is a human, a skilled and knowledgeable human, um, and you've you've two x or two two plus x it. So yeah. um, that's another way that we are are going to solve this problem. It's not so much how do we train people faster, though that has a play. It's how do we how do we scale people's time? I'll give you another example, right? So field service tech, do an elevator repair, going out servicing an elevator, whatever the problem, door closing too hard, something like that. They do their work. Okay, they now have to do, took them 30 minutes to do the job. I'm making these numbers up, but let's say it takes them 30 minutes to do the job. They now have to do some post-job reporting. Hey, this is what I did. Hey, this is parts I ordered. This is when the job was complete. Got the signature. If you ask that tech, and we talked a lot of end users, they're, I mean, field techs are awesome. They are the superheroes of the industry because they go out and they solve a problem. And they're people that are wired for doing that, which is great. They don't see the back-end post-work paperwork as solving the problem, right? Uh, Superman, no. Superman doesn't no. write up an after-action report and turn it into the Justice League. <laughs> you know? So how do we offload that stuff, automate that stuff, use AI to make that yeah. faster? So now your person, instead of doing 30 minutes of work, 30 minutes of reporting or 20 minutes of reporting, and now you take that 20 minutes out, they're now... If capacity's gone up, probably their job satisfaction's gone up too. And so that's really where we're looking for those ways. Again, this is the, the I dare I say, non-sexy stuff that actually has a huge impact on how to make our a workforce more effective. Charlie, I tell you what, this is a, that's an amazing example. Uh, for those listening, you might ask, like, oh, did you plant this and time this out? No, it did not. My son was actually stuck in an elevator this past week. And <laughs> he was. And it and <laughs> And the fire department came and wow. there was an inspector who there was a engineer or from someone from the elevator service company 
uh, that did their thing and had to do their post checks and all that other stuff. And sure enough, when, you know, the kids are taking pictures next to the fire truck because they're all been released, the hockey team is now freed. They're doing TikToks and dancing. This poor guy. He's doing something with a notepad. <laughs> and what was weird was a notepad. He was still using carbon paper. Uh, so I'm, I'm guessing you, it's a little bit of reporting on that. He didn't even have, you know, those digital pads that there's typing in what, what happened. He was right. like writing up what happened and taking pictures of it. There is some low hanging fruit out there. Definitely. Wow. <laughs> well, that building that you mentioned in, in Raleigh that you know well, if you go into elevator number C, you go past floor six or seven, it always goes clunk makes a couple really loud clunky noises still not sure about that so someday i might be on the news being trapped in the elevator listen it's does that elevator system still have the one where you have to type in the floor you go to and then it like delivers you the car yes so annoying i can't stand that (laughs) (laughs) it is it's supposed to optimize transport but i know every morning i see a giant crowd of people not getting the elevator Yeah, and there's one that never shows oh, up. I've never been in the A elevator, so that must be the uh, for the elite or something because it never tells me. Maybe it's a service elevator. Who knows? Uh, maybe. maybe. <laughs> I have to think back to my time there if I ever got to ride an A. I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, Charlie, it was awesome having you on the show. Uh, you know, one of the things, like I said, this whole season about IT visionaries, we want to meet the people that are building the solutions that are going to help shape the physical future. This sounds exactly like what we're talking about. The reality is 100% of the people on earth currently today rely on industrial machines and services to work. And it is a serious task to keep any of these things running and operating. Uh, most of them run and operate, like you know this better than anybody, 24-7. These companies don't stop. The people that do these jobs do not stop. So anything that makes it easier, since Charlie already hit the nail on the head, there's not more people running into these fields. This is not. There should, there, we want them to be, but there's not. There's not enough people want to do these jobs. So if he's making it easier, giving people capacity, making it easier to train, taking away some of the more mundane things that like we just talked about, those reports, this is going to help society in a big way. Charlie, I want to say thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries and sharing what LibreStream is doing for the industrial worker. Thanks for having me, Albert. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Wait, wait, wait. Wait. Is that is that jitter? Is that... No, just playing. It is time to check yourself with a little network health checkup brought to us by Zayo. This is where we ask questions about network health for moderate infrastructure. Charlie, your your software depends on things going right. And I know you're not in charge of the network all the time. So we're going to ask you a couple of questions. Says you kind of, we could pretend like if you could recommend someone to do this in the future, what would they do? You ready? Fire away. All right. Let's start here. What are some of the emerging technologies you're most excited about that can potentially make it easier for you guys to transfer data? Because you mentioned earlier that LibreStream has figured out ways to basically lower the bit rate and move data across low latency networks. That's seemingly simple solution, but I know it's technically hard. Give us an idea. What are some of the other things that you're hopefully looking forward to um, that maybe you don't have to do that for you? Maybe you don't have to, you won't be required to do that anymore. Sure. Sure. It's uh, you know, one thing is just the, the, the broader deployment of, of network infrastructure. I mentioned earlier, the, the North sea where we, we got our start, you know, today there's companies that have done a fantastic job of, of wiring that out and, and putting together. So you can get great connectivity there. I think there's, there's a rising tide all over that said, there are still places in, West Texas or Wyoming, that uh, you know connectivity is a challenge, um, or even in in you know we're we're riding on Wi-Fi or or 
cellular, even satellite. But, you know, you could be in the middle of Manhattan and be in a data center three stories down. You're not going to get anything or in a paper mill where everything's a gigantic three football field long steel machine making paper that's that's creating a, a Faraday effect. So you're not getting connectivity. So the, the reality is that um, I'm bullish on the fact that demand will inst- instigate supply in those scenarios because as the world gets more and more connected, whether that's IoT devices and, and, and assets, physical assets or human elements, we're going to deploy where where it's needed. So I'm I'm bullish on the on the continuing uh, rising tide of of available connectivity. Yeah, no doubt. I, I can see. I agree. I think the, the device makers are going to figure out ways to bring that high speed internet everywhere. I always talk to other team members about how the internet's nothing but a bunch of lines in the dirt. And unfortunately, you can't run a line everywhere. So someone's got to figure out a way to bring it somewhere else without a line. And uh, I think you're going to see more and more technology companies invest in that type of future. Um, for yourself, one of the things that is critical in your field, or many fields now, but specifically yours, is all, things are have to be always connected. For yourself, when you think of other companies, how do you think they should best approach this idea to remove single points of failure? Because obviously, if you only have one source of connectivity, that's a serious problem. How do you think companies should approach removing those single points of failure? So certainly um, there's a couple of approaches. You know, our approach usually is a, again, from our background is how do you operate in an offline mode? So one of the ways that, that we look at this is what can we cache at the edge? What can we actually cache on the device? So, uh, you know, the as we start to put more and more AI into our platform, as there are elements of that that we can we can localize in some way where you don't necessarily need to have full full backend connectivity. Okay, you're the first person that's ever said this, uh, which I thought was pretty cool. So if you're listing casually and you were just washing your dishes or something, pick that back up, rewind it a second. Charlie says, you should almost engineer your solutions as if there won't be connectivity. He's talking about caching things at the edge. I mean, that's as smart as it gets right there. <laughs> like, why not? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Well, Charlie, it was awesome having you on the show. Um, For your audience out there, did you hear or did you answer the same way as Charlie did? Because if not, you might want to check out the Network Health Check presented by Zayo. It's a free questionnaire that can guide you towards better network health for modern application use cases. Customers today are unforgiving when they can't access their applications. Don't let your network be the cause. Check it out. Network Health Check. Network Health Check.